And if you've got your Bibles, you might want to turn to uh, the Gospel of John. Let's do that. So we're still just starting our study of the Gospel of John. We're right near the very beginning. So chapter 1. Let me pray again as we look at God's word together. Father, as we approach your word, we know that this is truth and light for our lives. So we ask you to open our hearts to all that's here for us today. And may the truth of it bring forth rejoicing and faith in our hearts, Father, for what you've done for us. In Christ's name we pray, amen. So, last week we looked at the opening verses of John's gospel and he presented to us the Lagos, the word, as it's translated in English. And he, it's just simple, profound language. It reads like this, verse 1, In the beginning was the word. The word was with God, and the word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things came into being through him, and apart from him, nothing came into being that has come into being. So when John started his gospel with the words, in the beginning, you know, we talked about it's, it's not exactly a coincidence that he chose those words, right? It's his way of taking us all the way back to the first days of creation and the wonder of a new world teeming with life, all that went on there. And John's readers of, first, of the Gospel of John here, when the very first verse, you're supposed to remember Genesis. You're supposed to think back to Genesis if you have any awareness of that book's existence, you know, if you know your Bible at all. So in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. That's how Genesis begins. So the Bible begins with, in the beginning, God. John's gospel begins with, in the beginning, was the word. So what is John doing? He's telling us something new and foundational to, in his gospel story here regarding who the story is about and what it means for us. So in Genesis you need to know that God made everything. And human beings were made in the image of God. That's what Genesis is going to tell you. After God made man. God said of creation. That it was very good. Before man he said it was good. But when man was added to creation. The high point of creation. He said it was very good. So why would he say that? What's different? Well, the image bearers have arrived when God made human beings, the people that are made in the image of God. Creation had its caretaker and its protector, so it was all good. Man was there. So in the beginning, that's what man needed to know, that he is special, that he's created in God's image, he's accountable to the creator, and he's going to serve the creation by serving the creator. He's going to take care of it. But a lot happened between the creation of the image bearers in Genesis and John sitting down 2,000 years ago to write his gospel. A lot happened in between those two times, right? Many years passed and the, the world that God had created became very, very different. Because man is different. Man is lost. He sinned against God and forsook his calling to take care of God's world, went his own way, disobeyed God, rejected God's calling on him, and his relationship with God was completely shattered. It was broken. And then the world was placed under a curse so that man would realize that his relationship with God was broken. What if the world had not been cursed by God? 
What if everything was just beautiful, fine, like we lived forever, everything lived forever, it was just great? What would that, what would that say? That there's nothing wrong. God cursed the world. The reason we suffer, the reason we, our bodies are dying, the reason there's pain and heartache and all of those things is to remind us that everything's not okay between God and man. And men need to be reconciled to God. That's why that happened. That's why the curse came upon the world. So man is very different. He is, he is lost. He sinned against God. So death came to him and corruption entered nature and awful things have followed ever since. And soon after man rebelled, the Lord said, it wasn't that long after that, the Lord said, the Lord saw that the wickedness of man was great on the earth and that every intent of the thoughts of his heart were only evil continually. So you just get from Genesis chapter 1 to Genesis chapter 6 and by Genesis chapter 6 the thoughts and intentions of men's hearts are only evil continually. So God made man in his image very good, very good. That person, those people only had evil intentions. Not too far away from that first couple. So the world is a mess. Have you noticed the world is a mess? <laughs> I'm, really, I'm really careful about saying the world is worse than it's ever been because it's not worse than it's ever been. Um, it's been a mess for a really long time. All the way back to the garden actually. But the mess changes its ideologies and philosophies and ways of doing mess. You know, it's uh, got its own things going. As far as Western civilization goes, which is kind of a very slow rise, um, it's probably worse than it's been in a long, long time. And I say that because before now, after the Bible came into the world and after Christ Christianity came into the world and Jesus was honored in a lot of different places, of course there was tremendous evil still and hypocrisy because we're talking about human beings. But after the Bible came into the world, at least in countries that had the Bible, there was this standard, this correction. And no matter how weird things would get at different times in different ways when other philosophies and ideologies and terrible people would rise to power in different countries and all those things, you could always go back to the Bible and say, oh, that's how it's supposed to be. So there were always people that were saying, we're gonna go in this direction and start correcting our ways. You know, back in England in the Wilbur, William Wilberforce fought so hard against the slave trade as a believer in Parliament and he was totally outnumbered. Everybody despised him except for a very small little group of Christians in Parliament that were fighting the slave trade and fought it for year after year after year. He said his purpose and he wrote a book. The title is so long it would take up half my sermon to tell you about it but the titles were long in those days. But um, he said his purpose was to reform the manners and the morals of England according to the gospel. That was his purpose for writing this very famous book he wrote. And, and he eventually did bring the slave trade to an end. And England became not, not a slave country but a slave fighting country. And they used their vast armada of ships to suppress the slave trade all over the world. And the British Empire was one of the big opponents of that. In America there was the abolition movement that started in America to end slavery. Why did they do that? Because as, although we set up in America this horrible, unjust and cruel and oppressive system against a certain people, this was still there. And people would read it and say, well, that's wrong. So they started to fight it. So there's always been this sort of correction thing, right? People speak out against all kinds of wrongs. All, that's why dueling was ended 
It was Christians that ended dueling as a, we'd still have congressmen shooting each other if it wasn't for the Bible and its impact on the culture, really. Laws were passed based on scripture and to bring something like that to an end. Many of the, of the best things in our civilization, in our culture, can be traced directly to the Im impact of Christianity on the world. So, now we live in a time, you're fortunate to live in a time when you can be a light because the entire culture is moving against Christianity, rejecting Christianity, rejecting the Bible as an authority. So this is a great time to live. Maybe not a fun time, but a great time, truly. To be, able, to be able to be a light in the world. But what it means is that the whole culture is rejecting Christianity wholeheartedly in academia and Hollywood and everywhere else, government. It means the correction is gone. So when injustice happens and bad things start going on and all the horrible things we're seeing in our culture right now, and it, who's to stand up if the culture says, well, that's not our, that's not our standard. We're just gonna go by how we feel. That's why things go so wrong. What will be the correction for, for our ever more bizarre beliefs and ideologies that are dominating our culture today? What's going to be the correction? Well, we can stand up and point to the Bible, but we're going to be a, well, we are. We're a very tiny minority. Bible-believing Christians are a very tiny minority in our country, very tiny minority. So John uses in the beginning because he's telling us of God's salvation from this human disaster that's been created by the sins of mankind that man has brought upon himself. And the whole Bible is the story of God's plan for redemption. He's going to pay a price and buy back humanity and fix us. So God's in the saving business. Now, I don't know if you've read Genesis yet, but if you ever have, do you remember how little space Genesis devotes to the subject of man being very good. It's chapter one and chapter two, that's it. Now this is a pretty big book. That much right there, that's how much is devoted to man being good, right there, just that little part. The rest of it's all about man being horrible and God setting forth a plan to redeem mankind. So by the time you get to chapter three, man falls, right? So the whole Bible, man is very good for only two chapters. And that's because man himself wasn't very good for very long, right? So the Bible was written to people who are not anything close to very good, myself included. Cultures and civilizations are, are not anything close to being very good. How come it, it seems like when things rise, they always fall again? They always do. Corruption always sets in, no matter what system of government you think of or plan or whatever wonderful people might be ruling at a certain time, it all falls apart. Always, always. That's the history of mankind, and it's happening today right before our eyes. So Genesis um, is God's story of redemption as well. It starts there, hope, blessing, the promise of blessing coming through one man someday, you know. And the whole Old Testament is a record of human sin and darkness with the promise of a savior who would be light, bring light to the world, the promise of light. So when darkness surrounds us and we're lost, just think of yourself in the woods somewhere, completely pitch dark. What's the one thing you'd probably want more than anything else, other than somebody to walk up and say, hey, I know how to get out of here. 
you want light, right? <laughs> yeah, of course, you want light because you're tripping over roots and you're crashing into trees and branches are tearing your face off and all kinds of things like that. So, so you want light, you want to be able to see. So God sends a light into our dark world. Humans have used darkness and light as metaphors because of that natural experience we have as metaphors for good and evil all the time. Light is good and evil is, is dark, right? It's always that way. Ignorance and understanding, ignorance is darkness and understanding is light. Ever since man fell, we've always talked in those languages. Every culture uses that language, light and dark. So Isaiah, the great prophet who lived 700 years before the time of Christ, he spoke about a coming light, a great light. So this is Isaiah chapter 9, verse 2. And he's talking about a specific place. But he says, the people who walk in darkness will see a great light. Those who live in a dark land, the light will shine on them. You shall multiply the nation. You shall increase their gladness. They will be glad in your presence as with the gladness of harvest. And then a little bit later, Isaiah says, just a couple of verses later, he says, very famous passage, for a child will be born to us, a son will be given to us, and the government will rest on his shoulders, and his name will be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Eternal Father, Prince of Peace. And there will be no end to the increase of his government or of peace on the throne of David and over his kingdom to establish it and uphold it with justice and righteousness from then on and forevermore. And then it says, the zeal of the Lord of hosts will accomplish this. That kingdom is coming. Who is the great light? Well, it's Jesus of Nazareth. In fact, the great light prophecy is about Galilee, where Jesus came from. He is the wonderful counselor. He is the mighty God. He is the father of eternity. He is the prince of peace. He is the word who was in the beginning, as John says here. And that's why John sits down to write. John's message is the light has come. The light has come. The promised one, the great light has come. And once Christ had come, it's time to fully explain who he is and that's why John writes his gospel so he he begins with in the beginning to point us to the creator of everything and the creator of everything is the logos the, the word that's who did it so we talked for a couple weeks now about how carefully and precisely John introduces the word the word was already in existence before creation that's what he says in verse 1 of John's gospel before before the genesis of the whole universe, the word was with God, he says, and the word was God. So the word was already in existence. The very first verse of this gospel tells us the word was with, was with God and was God. So Genesis tells us in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. So John tells us the word who is God created everything. So verse two, he was in the beginning with God. All things came into being through him. And apart from him, nothing came into being that has come into being. He created everything. So if we start in Genesis, we see that, that God created everything, but we don't know that God as the person of the word, the logos, we don't know him as that yet until John writes this. Now we do know. 
Now it's being revealed. I mean, when I say now, I mean when John was there, right? Writing all this down. So the Redeemer has come. It's time to know God the Redeemer. That's what he's saying. The great light, a child born to us. So John's parallels with Genesis chapter 1. John chapter 1 and Genesis chapter 1 have a lot of parallels there. It's very intentional. And then these two words kind of jump out as he tells us more about the word, the lagos, this person. Two words, and the words are light and life. Those are the two words. So verse 4 of John chapter 1, in him was, the, was life, and the life was the light of men. So he's linking Genesis and the creation to the Redeemer coming. And of course in Genesis, physical light is the very first thing God creates after just kind of making a, the universe in general, but um, undefined. But the first thing he does is let there be light, right? In fact, it's interesting about John because in John chapter 1, our main subject is, his main subject is our need for redemption. Light as a quality of the word. Now he's using it as a metaphor. He's not talking about physical light. Genesis is talking about physical light. God said let there be light and there was light, right? John is using it in a metaphorical sense. In fact, John's gospel, I, would, I just kind of went through it because I was curious about this. He never mentions sunlight. He never mentions lamplight. He never mentions firelight like, or anything like that once, ever. Every time he uses the word light, it's about the light of Christ. The metaphorical use of light understanding, truth, all of those kinds of things. He only mentions the light of God. It's a huge theme in John. And if you were with us in 1 John, when we were studying that a few weeks and months ago here, you might recall near the beginning of that letter, he reminds the readers in 1 John chapter 1, verse 5, God is light and in him there is no darkness at all, right? God is light, he says. God is pure light, pure goodness, pure holiness, pure Truth, unstained, untainted. Darkness always represents sin and error in its metaphorical sense. And the very things that Satan brought into the garden to corrupt man. Sin and error. Colossians chapter 1 verse 13, Paul calls the evil system of the world, Satan's system, the domain of darkness. That's what he calls it. And the Redeemer is bringing light for souls to rescue them from the domain of darkness and bring them into the kingdom of his son, of, of God's son. So the Redeemer's bringing light for our souls. Light is God illuminating the darkness, letting us see the truth clearly about the domain of darkness. Oh, that's where I've been. I need to get out of that and go follow the Lord. He, we understand all that truth through him. So the Redeemer is a light bearer. The other word in verse 4 is life. In him was life. And the life was the light of men. The word life occurs 36 times in John's gospel. It's a major word here, thematic word. Genesis also talks about life as it carefully details the creation of man. In Genesis chapter 2 verse 7, remember the Lord God formed man from the dust of the ground and breathed into his nostrils, what? The breath of life. The breath of life. And man became, it says, a living being. Genesis 2, 7. So the breath of life, 
man as God created him to live in a paradise on earth to guard and keep the garden that he was placed in. That was his job. And that life became completely corrupted by human rejection of God and, and rebellion against him. So our bodies were cursed then with decay and disease and finally death. So when John is talking about life here in John chapter 1, he's not talking about this physical life that we have, which we forfeited because of sin. He's talking about eternal life. Eternal life with God. Something God gives to those who put their trust in him. Very often in John, life is paired with the word eternal. Jesus is going to talk a lot about eternal life in John's gospel. That's what Christ brings to us. Eternal life. So remember, John tells us why he wrote his gospel we started studying this gospel two weeks ago. Well, actually three weeks ago because we had Easter. But we started at the end of the book. Do you remember? In chapter 20. I'm going to read that for you again. Why did he write the book? This is the end, the last words of chapter 20. These have been written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God. And that believing you may have life in his name. That's why he wrote. Life. So John's purpose is that you find life in Christ. Eternal life. Life that will never be taken from you. Life that will be yours forever. Life that will carry you into heaven. And put you in God's presence forever. That's what Christ brought to the world. And here in John 1.4. He tells us for the first time. That in him. In the word. In Christ is life. It's the first time he says it. When John says in him was life, he's not saying Jesus is alive. Obviously Jesus is alive. He created life. He just said that. He created life. John is saying in him there is life for you. In him there's life for me. In him there's life for anyone who comes to receive it. And that's why he adds and the life was the light of men. Jesus brings life and light which all men need because we're in darkness. Why? We are dying. We are in darkness. That's why we need life. It's just that simple. Now of course our bodies dying is one thing but of much greater concern is what the Bible actually calls the second death. The second death is after your body has died your soul not being in God's presence being cast out of God's presence, away from God. That's the second death. That's worse. Physical death, death is a separation. Physical death is your body and your soul being separated from each other. Your soul is going somewhere else, your body's going to decay, right? Spiritual death is being separated from God. We are separated from God when we come into this world because humanity is separated from God. We have to be reconciled to God. But after you die, if you're not reconciled to God, you will always be apart from God. That's that's the great tragedy of the human condition. That's what happened when our first parents sinned. They were separated from God. The relationship was broken. They cut the cord. And that doesn't mean, um, you know, God is not a cable TV company. And we, I cut the cord. Now I'm only online. It's not that. If you cut the cord with him, you forfeit your life. If you break away from him, if you cancel your subscription with him, <laughs> you forfeit your life. Because the Bible says your iniquities, your sins have made a separation between you and your gods. And your sins have hidden his face from you. That's what the Bible says. So when our first parents sin, physically they start dying. But spiritual death was already present in them and much worse. 
And they had to be reconciled to God for that to be changed. They lost intimacy with God. If you lose God, you'll be wandering in darkness until death takes you. Unless you're reconciled to God. So spiritual death is separation, a rejection of God. Not a rejection of religion, because religion was created so people could be away from God, find other ways, other paths, alternatives to God. The Bible consistently sees all religion as something to take you away from God, not something to bring you to God. It's not a way to be reconciled with Him. Idols are nothing. False gods are nothing except people trying to use the forces that are out there for their own good fortune. That's all they're doing. That's why they're praying. That's why they're worshiping. They just want blessings for whatever on whatever wickedness they're doing. That's not a relationship with the living God that comes through faith. If we're spiritually dead, what do we need? Well, if I'm dead, I need life. Where is life found? Verse 4, in him was life and the life was the light of men. So, it's in Christ, it's in Jesus, the creator, the redeemer, life is found in him. Jesus said in John chapter 3 when he spoke to Nicodemus, he said, you must be born again. Because your first birth is being born in Adam and that's under a curse and you're separated from God. You're born separated from God. But when you're born again, you have life and light. A spiritual birth, which only God can give, that's life, that's life. So that is life renewed and transformed and bound for glory with him in eternity. That's what it is. If you're dead spiritually, that is separated from God, then you pass into eternity separated from God. To be reconciled, to be restored, something has to happen to us. Something internal has to happen to us in the very center of our being. And if you want to use the word light, I think that's really an appropriate word. The lights have to come on, you know. If you're in darkness, the light has to come on. I'm sure you know the common expression for not knowing something. I mean, you, you hear it in conversations all the time. Somebody at work says, hey, what's happening with management? Seems like something's up, you know. And you go to your boss and you say, you know, people are in my unit are asking a lot of questions. And the boss says, well, I don't know. I'm in the dark. What does that mean? He doesn't, he doesn't have the information. He doesn't know what's going on. He's, he's lost to that. You know, that's what that means in common usage. We use that all the time. Another thing the boss might say is, well, uh, what sort of questions are they asking about the management? I mean, enlighten me. Right? So enlightenment is understanding and knowledge and things like that. That's why we commonly use those words in culture. So light in those conver conversations represents knowledge, understanding, grasping truth. Now some conversations go in a very different sort of direction. Maybe you want to enlighten somebody about a matter that you know with great certainty and they don't believe you. You know when I was thinking about this I was um, remembering a conversation I had. Um, we were chatting, my wife and I were chatting with some folks at a table. This is not a church event, this is our, um, a, another event going on. And we were just talking about it and we, we talked about the Easter drama at Vasquez Rocks. It just came up and we were having the conversation about it. So, oh, I've been there. I've seen that. And then somebody else said, oh, that's such a great performance. That's such a wonderful thing. And um, they have professional actors there, you know, and, and they pay them. <laughs> You're laughing because you know. <laughs> <laughs> They're in the dark. That's exactly right. So I was saying, before she said that, I said, I said you know, it's all volunteer. And this lady goes, oh no, 
Oh no, the main actors are paid. In fact, Jesus is paid. And she said, I know that. And, and I, I said, no, he does it voluntarily. I said, everybody, this is, I think this is when Aaron was Jesus actually. Everybody knows about it. And she goes, nope, nope, he's paid. So she said she knew this was the case, even though she had nothing to do with the drama. She had no part in it. So I finally just said, listen, I don't want to boast or anything, but I'm one of the main planners of that drama. And I've been doing it for years. And I see where all the money goes. And nobody gets paid. I can absolutely assure you, I can say with complete confidence, nobody involved in that production gets paid anything. Jesus gets paid with nothing. He does it totally voluntarily. And she says, no, that's not right. <laughs> she didn't believe me. Now, does it matter that someone doesn't believe me about a man playing Jesus in a play? Does that matter? Right. My wife is shaking her head. Right. No, it, it doesn't matter at all. But here's the thing. When God tells you something of great importance, great importance about the real Jesus, something that your eternal destiny actually depends on, that you may be in the dark about, something that you need to know to, to live with God forever, you should listen. That matters. It matters to listen to what he says. Right? That's, that's what I'm trying to say here. God says you must be reconciled to him through Jesus Christ and his blood on his terms. And you need to listen to that. He tells you that your sin is worthy of death. And that his son Jesus Christ literally paid the debt of your sin. Your, your sin is like this huge burden. And God put that whole burden on Jesus Christ. The whole burden. So that you don't have to bear it. But you've got to accept that. You've got to put your faith in him. You've got to give yourself to him. You've got to be reconciled to God. You should listen to that. Above anything else in your life. You should listen to that. But it's hard. It's hard for people to listen. Actually, John chapter 3 will be getting there someday. <laughs> Verse 19 tells us why it's hard. It says, men love the darkness rather than the light. Men love darkness because we are fallen creatures. We are born of rebels' parents. Men love darkness because they have dark hearts. Their understanding is corrupted by an internal preference for idols, for other gods. Our self is God, lovers of self, the Bible says, will be the fundamental affection at the end of the world. In, in the last days, it says, men will be lovers of self over God. And Jesus will warn men about this later in the Gospel of John, chapter 8, verse 12. Jesus says, I am the light of the world. He who follows me will not walk in the darkness, but will have the light of life. What a wonderful promise. In chapter 12, verse 46, Jesus came. He said, I've come as light into the world so that everyone who believes in me will not remain in darkness. Men are in darkness. So they set their affections, they reason in their heads, and they choose sinful choices all apart from God and away from God and in a direction away from God. So Jesus is the light who reveals the truth and he is the life to save men who are consumed with their darkness. And he's to lead them out of darkness into the kingdom of light. And as the light, Jesus reveals to us that we're sinners, that we have sinful condition. All you have to, if you really want to know if you're a sinner or not, 
And you say, sometimes you meet people who say, you know, yeah, I'm not really a sinner. I don't, I don't sin. Just measure yourself. Forget the Ten Commandments. Measure yourself by Jesus. Are you Jesus? <laughs> well, no, I'm not that good. You're a sinner then. Because he was perfect. And you're nothing like him. I'm nothing like him. We're all far, far short of what we're supposed to be in this world. He, he is the perfect man. And none of us are like him in that way. We hope to be like him. We labor to be like him. With God's help, we try to be like him. But we're never going to be like him until we see him face to face. Let's move on to verse 5 then. Um, this is a little bit, we're going to wrap it up with this, but uh, unfortunately this verse can be seen in two different ways. So I have to kind of explain that. So I, I hate having to spend time doing that, but it's, it's a clear one here. So um, mainly because there's different opinions about how to translate this certain Greek verb. It's not a big deal, but it's just interesting. So, you know, one verb can have different meanings, like in English words can have different meanings, right? Like, like the word mine, mine, mine is something babies say. <laughs> Mine could be something that belongs to me. Mine could be something I take a pickaxe in and go work really hard to get silver ore out of. Mine could be something that sinks a beautiful battleship. I mean, it's all mine. Or the word novel. Novel could be something new, or novel could be something I, a book I curl up with before I go to sleep at night, right? I mean, novel, it, it, words have different meanings. So that's the case here. So um, in John 1, 5, the verb, here's the Greek word, kata lambano. I know you know exactly what that means. <laughs> it basically means to grasp. Kata generally means down. It sort of has that idea. Um, or against. Lambano just means to take something. So metaphorically, it means to take something in to understand something. I, I get it. When you say I get it, you're, I, I, I've taken it down in, into my understanding there. The other way is it can mean to be like physically taken down, overthrown, overcome. So it has both meanings. And depending on your translation, it's going to say one or the other, right? So I have a New American Standard, 1995 New American Standard, very important. <laughs> Don't go for the 2020. No, I'm just kidding. Mine says the light shines in the darkness and the darkness did not comprehend it. Do you have a word like that in there? Understand or comprehend? That's what mine says. If you have an English Standard Version, which I know some of you have, the light shines in the darkness and the darkness has not overcome it. So one says they didn't understand it, one says they did not overcome it. Overcome, comprehend. Two views of one word with different meanings. So take your pick is kind of, kind of where we are with that. Usually you can kind of tell from the context, but the context actually supports both. So it's, it's kind of an interesting situation. So if comprehend is correct, the verse is speaking of the darkness which makes men fail to see the glory of Christ, right? That, that the glory that Christ brings to them. And you can see it in verse 10. Verse 10 and 11. He was in the world and the world was made through him and the world did not know him. There's the comprehension part. He came to his own and those who were his own did not receive him. They rejected him. They, they wouldn't, they rejected, they did not comprehend who he was or, or accept it. Now if overcome is correct, then verse 5 would mean that despite the darkness of men's hearts, God can make the light shine into the hearts of some because they're not going to overcome it. And verse 12 and 13 talk like that. As many as received him, 
To them he gave the right to become children of God, even to those who believe in his name, who were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. So one, one view, uh, the comprehend view, sees the, the difficulty or even the inability of darkened hearts to grasp the light of Christ. They can't take it in. The other view sees the light of Jesus triumphing over man's darkness. He, it can't be stopped. And they're both true. So it's not like one's true and the other side. They're both ideas are right. And they both have some support right here in the context here. But the translation overcome is also used in John chapter 12 verse 35. Where Jesus says, for a little while longer the light is among you. Because he was going to be killed. Walk while you have the light so that darkness will not overtake you. Same word, overtake, right there. He who walks in the darkness does not know where he goes. While you have the light, believe in the light that you may become the sons of light. So when he says, so that darkness will not overtake you, that's katalambano, that's the same exact word. And while comprehend is actually a more common translation of this word in the New Testament, um, John uses it in 1235 and as overthrow or overcome. So, so most scholars today favor overcome as, a, as the right translation. And this argument's been going on for hundreds of years. Which one is right? You know, and you can't know for sure. But we do know this. Jesus is life and the light shines in him very brightly. That we know. So John's gospel is just filled with light and life in Jesus. Those two words keep showing up over and over again. We're go it's going to come back as we work our way through the gospel many, many times. And those words, light and life, contain the essence of the gospel. That's, that's where it's at. Okay, so what are some rays of light that we've seen so far today? We saw in verse 3, John chapter 1, that the word who was in the beginning was with God and was God, and he created everything. He made everything. Nothing's been made that he didn't make. And, and um, verse 3, all things came into being through him and apart from him nothing came into being that has come into being. Then verse 4, in him was life and the life was the light of men. So he has no limits on his power, on his creativity, on his intelligence. He is life itself and all other life is from him. Physical life and spiritual life is from him. And the human soul is from him. All life is from him and all life is sustained by him. And since mankind languishes in darkness, spiritual darkness, they're lost to God and our bodies are doomed to die. He, because he is light and life, he is the perfect savior for us. And that's what you need to know. That part is really clear. He is life and light. And he can enlighten our minds. He can enlighten our souls and redeem our bodies when it counts on the day we die. Or the day he comes for us. He's all we need. Well that's for today. So more to come in John's prologue. Chapter 1 verse 1 through 18. More to come in his prologue in this amazing gospel. So next time we'll look at John's first witness to the light. Okay. Let's pray. Lord God who gives light and life. It's you who pours light into the souls of lost men and we thank you for shining the light of Christ into our hearts we rejoice in it we ask you to keep us from all darkness Father that we not fail
to bring you glory with our lives. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen.